Good morning, everybody. If you're new here at Cornerstone or watching at home for the first time, my name is Brian Carlucci. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before I get into the message, I want to make sure every one of you gets an invitation to our party on Wednesday night here at Cornerstone. It's our Sukkot party. If you don't know what Sukkot is, it's one of those Jewish fall festivals that is an awesome time to celebrate God's faithfulness and what he will do in the future when we get to spend eternity with him. We kind of combine that with a fall fest here at Cornerstone. We have a cornhole tournament with prizes, live music, uh, food truck serving wood fire pizzas. It's going to be a blast, and we would love everyone to be there. And I don't know about you, but I keep running into grouchy people. I sometimes am a grouchy person, and America needs more parties right now, so we're going to do our part by throwing a great party, and we'd love for you all to be here. It starts early, 5 o'clock, but it goes till 8, so uh, come at any time and be a part of it. Uh, the kids are going to have a blast, and we would love to have all of you here. All right, I want to continue in our series here at Cornerstone called Established, where each week we teach through one of our nine unique elements. These things, these are the, the, uh, the elements of our community that God has established here over our 25-year history. God has established them, but they're also the result of a lot of your own hard work and faithfulness and prayer and focus and emphasis over the years, and that's something to celebrate. But the reason we're teaching elements again is not just to look back at what God has done, but if there's a future for us together here at Cornerstone that involves healing and growth and God doing new things, he's going to build on these nine elements. Now, there may be new ones that come in the future, but these are the things that God wants to continue to do in our community and what I challenge you to think about, the very first message of this series, is to consider how each of these nine elements might be an important part of your life, how you can make them an important part of your life, a more important part of your life. And so we've talked about encounters, encountering God, making time to be with him so that we might encounter his presence. That's what people really, really need. And encounter is actually a good way to even start what we're going to talk about today, culture. We need to be with him before we can ever uh, go into culture and transform it. We need God's transformation in our life. We need his healing and his restoring, and we need to overcome the sin that's in our life. We need to bring it to Jesus who offers forgiveness and change because we all struggle with those things, and it separates us from God. And last week, Gene taught on confluence, the bringing together of the Christian and Jewish dreams. Now, if you think about those three, a lot of it is in our head and the way we practice, but it's kind of private to us personally as Christians and private to a church like ours. The element we're talking about today has everything to do with what happens outside of this building, outside of our gatherings, outside of what we call the religious events. Here at Cornerstone, we believe that God wants to use us. We know that God is busy bringing about his kingdom, and his kingdom is the great restoration of all things. God cares about healing our schools and our homes and our relationships, and he cares about the environment. He cares about all of those things, and he actually uses people like us to bring about that restoration. Here's our definition of culture here at Cornerstone. It is the stewarding, shaping, and restoring of the environments that God has placed us in. And so I want to start off today by saying God has placed you in environments, but I want you to think of it this way. God has placed you in certain gardens, and we're going to go to Genesis in a moment and see how God did that with Adam and Eve, but he's placed each of us in our own unique gardens. To do what? To steward, to shape, to heal, to restore. Now, there's two big assumptions here. First of all, there's the assumption that God can use us. 
Many of you think, uh, hey, it's pointless. You've worked really hard. Perhaps in, at one point in your life, you gave yourself passionately to some project, something that God would smile at, something that God was resourcing, and you didn't see the results. It can be easy to walk away with an attitude that it doesn't matter or everything is too big. But we're going back to that assumption that God is healing the world and he wants to use us. Here's the other assumption that is true and I wanna affirm in you, there's something inside of you that God can use. In fact, there's many things inside of you, including your broken story and your struggles. God can use those things to shape the cultures, the environments that you find yourself in. Now, if you have a whole church Going in that direction, you have something very, very powerful. You have a number of people shaping many environments with the healing nature of the gospel. Now, this can work the opposite way. I saw this illustrated this week. John, you can put that that picture of that book up there. I was reading the Denver Post, and there's a great new museum down in Denver called History Colorado, and uh, they got a hold of these two, um, they're not journals, but they're, they're books, they're registers of the members of the KKK in Denver in the 1920s. The KKK numbered around 30,000, which represented about 11, 11% of Denver's population. And what History Colorado did that's interesting is they took the ledger and all of the different addresses and they placed a dot on the map of Denver so that you could see where all the KKK members of the 1920s, including a governor and a mayor and a chief of police, where they lived. And when you look at the map, there are dots everywhere. And there are many dots on certain blocks. This, my friends, was strategic. It was a time where uh, the KKK was, of course, discriminating against people of different races, those that were black, Latino, uh, Catholics, and Jews were their target during this time. And they spread out throughout the city to do what? Influence culture to make it a terrible place for some people to live, a scary place for others, to make it unwelcoming. See, this is how evil also works. This is how Satan works. He calls people, whether they know it or not, into this place of trying to influence the world in a certain way. God also has an army that has the tools of forgiveness and love and healing And he has sent us off into different environments to build his kingdom. And here's a reminder just about his kingdom. The kingdom of God is Jesus' ultimate vision, which means it should be the vision of every Christian and every church. The restoration of all things, the healing of all things, justice, peace, mercy. Enough physically for people, safety, food. And God calls us into these things. Um, There's a great quote from a book called The Next Christians by Gabe Lyons. He says, brokenness exists within each channel of culture. Our role isn't merely to run reports, create spreadsheets, and show up on time. We are called to find the things that are broken and affect them in a positive way. Now, what I love about the quote is it reflects our limits. We can't change everything, and we can't change everything at once. We'll get to this in a moment, but we all have limits to our power and influence, but it doesn't change the fact that we're called to those things in the world that are broken. Here's the passage that this element comes from. It's Genesis chapter one. It's the very first story. We love telling the the first story here at Cornerstone. It's so foundational for our lives. In Genesis 126, 
find the meaning behind our creation. It's not just to enjoy God and be with him, but it starts there. But second, God gave us things to do. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made mankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then maybe just to clear up the confusion about words like subdue it and to rule over it, we're told the Genesis story, the creation story again in chapter 2. And here's how our purpose is summed up. Verse 15, the Lord took the man, and you can add the woman, and put him in the garden, put them in the garden to work it, and here's the key, to take care of it. The filling of the earth with life, the subduing, the ruling, is not to exploit anything. It's to take care of it. God loves his creation. And that's why as you read the story and the way it comes to an end, we're told that the Lord will restore all things. It will be consumed with fire but not destroyed. It will be remade, reborn. Because God does not abandon his good creation. And he has put us in the middle of it in all these different environments to take care of it. So here's the way I want you thinking as we move through the message. I want you thinking about the gardens that God has placed you in. He put Adam and Eve in a garden. He has placed you in a garden. Most likely, he's placed you in many gardens. A home, a neighborhood, a community, a team at work, a structure perhaps at work, in a family, in a marriage, in a number of friendships. God has placed you in different gardens. Andy Crouch has been the most influential author on us when it comes to this element and trying to focus this idea that we go into these places and we do the best that we can. We don't try to control it. We don't try to protest the world around us. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself because I want to talk to you about those different postures in a moment, but I want to read you a quote by Andy Crouch. I'm going to read it twice. Read it and we'll talk about something else and we're going to read it again. I think it's this important. This comes from the book called Culture Making. By the way, Andy Crouch is one of my personal favorites to read about power and vulnerability and what we're meant to do with our power. This comes from a book called Culture Making, Culture Making that has some of those themes. He says this, I wonder what we Christians are known for in the world outside of our churches. Are we known as critics, consumers, copiers, condemners of culture? I'm afraid so. We, why aren't we known as cultivators, people who tend and nourish what is best in human culture? Why do the hard and painstaking work, painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done? Why aren't we known as creators, people who dare to think and do something that has never been thought of or done before? Something that makes the world more welcoming, thrilling, and beautiful. I like the way he describes it. Jesus cares about having the world be a welcoming, thrilling and beautiful world. You could use words like hospitable, a world full of wonder and faith. And things that are beautiful reflect truth and, and, uh, and value. Now here's what he's getting at. There's been a number of different postures that the Christian churches over the years have had towards culture. Let me mention a few of them. There's the attitude that the church is against culture, fighting culture all the time. I can't help but think 
as a, a, a Gen Xer about the culture wars of the 80s and 90s, that I was a kid that I watched, or as a kid I watched these things. And it was about winners and losers, fighting against the culture, and even the way it was named, the culture wars. The church stood against certain people and certain things, and there was some virtue in it, but the posture was antagonistic. And God's not just after winners and losers. Another posture is that the church is above our culture. And if you grew up in certain Christian expressions like the charismatic stream, or even the holiness traditions like I grew up in as, as a Nazarene, often we're just told to just withdraw, that we're, we're not to worry ourselves about the little things. Like a local public election, or who's on our school board, or what's happening in our neighborhoods. Those things are small. It's not a healthy posture. Another posture that the church has had over the years is that we withdraw from culture. The Amish are a good example of this from history past. Many of you watched the movie The Village. It's very creepy and amazing. It's a perfect example of withdrawing from culture to protect yourself. Here's another posture that I see happening a lot today in our culture. The church, the same as culture. We want to be cool and fit in. And so we're taking our marching orders from things like Facebook and people's virtue signaling. And we're missing the higher calling of the kingdom of God and how part of that requires us to be distinct from our culture. Here at Cornerstone, we believe the best way to affect culture is to create good and better culture. So let me say that again. We don't protest, we're not higher, we're not against it, we don't conform to it. We believe the way you transform culture is by creating good and better culture. And what that requires is a group of people who live distinct but have not detached themselves from everything around. They're close enough, trusted enough, loved enough that their voice is heard at the table. So let's read this quote again. I wonder what we Christians are known for in the world outside of our churches. Are we known as critics, consumers, copiers, condemners of culture? I'm afraid so. Why aren't we known as cultivators, people who tend and nourish what is best in human culture, who do the, the, the hard, painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done? Why aren't we known as creators, people who dare to think and to do something that has never been thought of or done before, something that makes the world more welcoming, thrilling, and beautiful? That's important to remember because there's all kinds of crappy stuff going on in our world around us. And I often get asked as the lead pastor of this church, why don't we stand up here and rail against those things? Now, evil needs to be called out, bad needs to be called bad, sin needs to be called sin. But this posture of entering the broken world to create good and better culture even shows up here on, from the pulpit on Sundays. We think this is the posture of Jesus in the world. And so we want to express it this way. Now, with the rest of my time, I want to take you through a couple examples of what culture making can look like. I do want to mention one area I think that we're failing as a church. Hopefully we can grow in, all right? And then I want you uh, to name, before we're done today, some gardens that God wants you to steward, all right? So let me tell you a couple stories. Both these stories come from the book of 2 Kings. So this is a, a history book for Israel. It tells of a time where 
different kings were coming to power. There were good kings. There were bad kings. Israel was struggling. They're constantly at war. They have peace for a little while, and they're at war again. It was just a tumultuous, complex time in Israel's history. In 2 Kings chapter 23, a boy named Josiah becomes the king. He's a boy. And we're actually told of Josiah that there was never a king like him ever again. He was the most just, faithful uh, king who led out of integrity. And Josiah comes into a corrupt culture, and he's got all the power. He's the king, right? He's got the army behind him. He's got the priests behind him. And we're told as you read through uh, 2 Kings chapter, chapter 23 of some of his reforms. So he gets rid of all the pagan shrines throughout the country. And it even, enters, it even uh, reaches into the households of people and all the household idols are thrown away and burned. The evil religious leaders are removed from their posts. And he reinstates the celebration of the Passover and he puts again right at the center of Jewish culture that people need saved. Those are the things that he does. He puts God in the scriptures back at the center of Jewish culture. And the reforms are incredible. Now, here's the problem with Josiah as an example. None of us are like him. I don't know a single king or queen here. I'm yet to meet a person who has endless power. Even in our country where we elevate our, like, the roles of our governor and president so much, they have limited power. Often when we think about culture, we think about if I were in charge, here's all the things that I would do. Only if I were in charge. Now the closest thing that you may have to Josiah's experience is your own home. You're sort of in charge of your home, especially if it's your home. I remind my boys all the time, that this is your mom and I's house? But then we go to work, or we go into our neighborhood, and our power and our influence can be small, right? So Josiah's not a great example. There's a better example, though, in 2 Kings. It happens a few chapters before in chapter 5. A really weird story, all right? So I want to describe it to you, and then we're going to read a little bit of it. It's a story about a man named Naaman. Naaman's been one of my heroes for years. Naaman was an Ar Armenian Syrian general who was in Israel at the time leading uh, his army in a war against the armies of Israel. So he's the enemy of God's people. He's a foreigner. He's also very powerful. Not only is he the general of this army, this powerful army, but he has the trust of the king, and he has this one duty that often he would have to enter this temple, I'll tell you more about it in a second, but he would hold the arm of this old king while, while he worshiped. And so he had this trusted job of not just being the, the general, but of actually helping the king worship some of these pagan Syrian gods. So he's in Israel. And he gets an interest in the God of Israel because Naaman happens to have leprosy, that horrible disease that affects your skin and your appearance. Throughout the scriptures, it was, it's been used as an image of just what sin is like on the inside of us. It's a picture of the outside. And Naaman is told that if he goes to the prophet Elisha, Elisha can actually heal him. It's really not Elisha that can heal him, it's God. 
But God's going to use Elisha to heal this man. And so he ends up, while he's in Israel at war, he ends up out in front of Elisha's house. And he asks for healing, and, and Elisha doesn't even give him the time. He sends a servant out to talk to him, and he, and he tells him, go to the Jordan River and take seven baths. Basically, dip yourself seven different times in the Jordan River. When I was in Israel, I got in the Jordan River, dipped myself seven different times because of this story. I love it. Naaman at first says, I don't want to do it. It sounds stupid. Naaman's attendant says, you should listen to Elisha, even if it's coming through his servant. So Naaman goes to the Jordan River, he dips seven times, and guess what? He comes out healed, saved. And it's not just the outside that has changed, his heart has changed. God has got his attention. He is now a believer in the one God of Israel. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15, Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, Elisha. He stood before him and said, now I, have, now I know that there is no God in the world except in Israel. And then he asks if he can give Elisha gifts. So just notice how powerful that statement is. Maybe he has no idea about this God until he travels there. He hears about a God that heals. He hears about a God that loves. This miracle occurs in his life, and he said, there is no other gods. He's converted. His heart is healed and saved in the same way his body was. It's amazing. But now Naaman has a problem because he now has a new loyalty and love and affection, a new fidelity to a God that his nation does not recognize. His boss rejects. Naaman goes back to Elijah and keeps asking to give him gifts. Verse 16, the prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Elisha says, you're getting nothing. I, I need nothing in return for this gift. It's just God's grace. And even though Na Naaman urged him, he, Elisha keeps refusing. Then verse 17, if you will not, said Naaman, now listen to this, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master, the king, enters the temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm, I have to bow there also with him in the temple of Rimon. May the Lord forgive your servant for this. Here's what Naaman's asking for. He, okay, so this is what I want you to notice. I want you to notice how complex things are. I want you to notice how creativity helps transform this, this culture that he's gardening, okay, his garden, and I want you to notice his fidelity. He knows that he's gonna have to go back, hold the king's arm, and bow down with him. A sign of worship. During an act of worship, he's offering sacrifices. He's worshiping this pagan god. Naaman is taking back sacks of dirt so that when he enters the temple, the dirt may be laid down in the temple so that he can kneel, kneel on the ground of Israel. Now, is the soil special? Not at all. Although Israel at this time was considered holy ground, okay? But it was considered holy ground because it was God's land. God claimed it. God owned it. 
people in Israel bow down to the one true God. And Naaman knows that when he bows down in the temple, if he kneels on the ground, he will be giving a witness in the, the, the difficult, complex culture that he's in that this is the garden God has placed me in, but at least the ground that I kneel on, it belongs to God. Who owns this ground? Do you think people noticed? Do you think that as time went on, as they noticed his changed life, perhaps he's more forgiving, more loving? Perhaps he asked for a different job that's not so violent? That people would start asking, hey, is that connected to your new way of worshiping? That you bow on the ground of the God of Israel to stay faithful to him? I think so. It's amazing. But notice how complex it is. I know that some of you enter a a work environment every week where you might be the only Christian there. You're not the only one that cares about justice and love and forgiveness, but you might be the only one that believes in in the vision of God's kingdom, the way he describes it. You might be the only person there that submits to the scriptures. Everyone else, like it's old fashioned, what's wrong with it? But you struggle with it and you're working to submit yourself to the scriptures. You might be the only person in that office, at that table. You might be the only person in your family because the world is complex. You know what's not complex? Josiah's world. That world's not complex. Naaman's world is complex. Your world is complex. And Naaman becomes a friend of ours. He knows that the culture has different ideas. We call this pluralism. Uh, There's many different views about morality and faith. That's the world we live in. It should be news to some of you who are still holding on to the past that America is a post-Christian nation. We're not getting that back where we have these shared beliefs with people. I wish we could. It's gone. The world is complex that way. We now have this political environment that both political parties try to put Jesus behind them And it's gross. It's dangerous. The world is complex of how to shape culture. Naaman's environment was complex. But look what he does. He gets creative. All right. Heard about this thing, this this holy nation, this ground perhaps represents something different. I'm going to do whatever I can. That even while I'm in the temple with someone else worshiping, I'm going to bow down. And I'm going to stay faithful to the God who now has my heart. Now, here's what you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to go to Israel and get a bunch of dirt. Show up in your office or at uh, your Thanksgiving meal and sit on the dirt or eat the dirt or kneel on the dirt. You're not supposed to do that. But here's what I want you to hear. God, through the Holy Spirit, will help you be creative. He will help you find ways to be faithful. He will help you find ways to be influential. He will also help you just release control of all of the results. And isn't it nice to just release control of how people act? Like you're not in control of them. Your, 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 uh, your ability to change things might be small, but God will help you be faithful in the gardens that he's placed you. So this is what this story means to me. It doesn't matter how weird it is. It doesn't matter if you're the only one. 
God's spirit will help you. He'll help you be creative. I love what Elisha tells him. Elisha doesn't say, hey, you need a new job. Wouldn't that make sense? You can't do this job anymore. I mean, this should challenge us a little bit. Naaman's like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Esther. They have jobs working for evil governments. And they stay there. Elisha says to him, go, go back, go in peace. Verse 19. Doesn't say get a new job, doesn't say stay here. Says go. Because Elisha knows something. He knows how God changes the world. Through people, little dots on the map. That's how God changes the world. Here's the other thing I don't want to pass over. I want, to, I want you to notice his integrity, his faithfulness to what God has shown him, who he is. When you're trying to affect culture, your integrity often will, will cost you something. There will be a tension. You will be misunderstood. There might be times that you're rejected. I can't tell you how often over the years we meet new people and they ask me what my job is and I'm like, oh crap. I say that because what usually happens is I just get a whole bunch of, of judgment and the relationship never goes any further. So now I say, you know, I'm a world famous wrestling coach and uh, they're way more interested in that. Not at all, actually. <clears throat> it will cost you something. But this is what integrity is. I heard this on Thursday. Uh, I was with uh, an author we like to, to read here at Cornerstone, Pete Scazzaro. He has a great definition of integrity. He says, integrity is when the outside of your life matches the inside of your life. So there's a root that produces similar fruit, Okay. When the outside of your life matches the inside of your life. And he said, this is what spiritual growth is, and this is what it means to increase in integrity. It means the gap between the outside of our life and the inside of our, inside of our life gets smaller. Because we all have a gap. We all show up at times and put a mask on and pretend. We want to meet other people's expectations of us. Okay, so there's always a gap. So we're struggling with integrity all the time. But I love the definition. The outside appears... To be the same, it's congruent with the inside. Naaman's in a complex situation. God gives him a creative answer so that he can stay faithful. Every day, all of us are around people who have not yet discovered the grace of God and the healing message of God's kingdom as the answer for the problems of the world. And every day, we're around people who, they're, they're just like us. They're drawn to give their hearts and their trust, and their love, and their faith to other things. I love the way the Apostle Paul talks about it in Colossians. He said, he calls these things over-desires. The word's epicure. It, it, he, it actually can translate in your Bible to evil desires, but this is why it's evil. These are good things in life that people choose to live for. They're evil because they are not God, and they're evil because they disappoint us. So every day, we're around people who will go into a temple, and they will bow their knee to money or power, or the perfect body, or the perfect relationship, or comfort, or enough money. I mean, I could go on, right? These are just things we struggle with every day. 
So integrity to me means that we show up in those places and we have got to the place where we are continually repenting, coming back to God and say, I bow before only one God. I love, trust, and serve only one name. There is no shaping of culture for his kingdom until we learn to struggle with this. Because it will look different and it will cost us something. So it's complex. He gets creative. The Holy Spirit helps him. And he finds the integrity to show up and shape the culture around him. Remember Naaman. Remember him. Okay? Now here's something I want us to think about for a moment that I think that we're struggling on or struggling with as Christians. You know, the Bible's very clear. Jesus was very clear that he gave us the message of reconciliation. We're called to be peacemakers in the world. But right now, I continue to see God's people caught up in debates that are important, but certainly not worthy of division, hate, and ending relationships. I continue to hear of Christians who are ending relationships with people because they have different opinions about masks and vaccines. This is just added to the list of Christians ending relationships with dear ones, loved ones, over politics. I know why we're all doing it. We all have strong opinions. We also are like living in, in this world where we're told to moralize our opinions, which is really dangerous. But what's happening is we are being formed and pressed and conformed by the culture around us that says be tribal, divide, don't forgive, stay bitter, cancel, shame. Has that ever been part of Jesus' message to us? He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul said he has given us the work of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God. We are meant to show that reconciliation with other people. I love it. When people struggle with their conflicts and they stay together and they keep working on it. Because hostility will exist. I, don't th- I haven't met a person that loves how polarized and divisive America is right now. I- I've not met a person that loves that. But yet, we're acting the very same way. We're contributing to the world that we don't like. When Jesus has been very, very clear. So this is just getting very specific about culture making. Refuse to be that person that ends, that cancels, that divides, that shames. Refuse to be that person. It's going to be hard. It's going to be complex. You might have to have creative ways that God uses you in those spaces, in those relationships to continue it. But when you do that, guess what will happen? You will be showing up with the integrity of Jesus in that space. Jesus was the ultimate friend, ultimate father, never turned away from his people. So just a little plug for peacemaking. Something we've talked about openly here that we're not very good at, right? We need to stay at it. And I applaud anyone who's doing those things. All right, let me close with this. Just close by, again, reminding us of how important it is that we hear God's call on our life to be people who create good and better culture, wherever you're at. God has placed you in a garden 
The question is, whose ground does it belong to? So over the years, I've collected certain items that are in my office. And Elise and the boys know what they are, but if you were to come to my office at home, we don't have offices here because all the mess and construction happening. But someday, some of these items will be in my office here at the church. And I've got just a lot of things sitting on the shelf by my books that represent certain things, but almost all of them are there to help me remember certain things. So I have a chain hanging. For example, I have a chain hanging from my bookshelf, and the chain reflects um, the generations of relationships and spiritual formation and spiritual fathers and mothers in my life and how I want to be the same. I want to be a link in that chain. And then if you stretch the chain out this way, that I'm a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a part of this community, I'm connected with all of you. It's a reminder that I can't be strong, disconnected from relationships. But I have other things that remind me of certain things. And I I really got this from Naaman and the story of Naaman. And so here's one of my favorite items. This is a bunch of confetti, gold confetti, pulled from the ground at Super Bowl 50. Oh, yeah. I was at Super Bowl 48. And it was disgusting confetti. It was Seahawk confetti. But this confetti is Bronco confetti. And I just gathered up as much as I could. And I have it in a bag and I keep it in a cup and I just remember. All right, I've got more important things. Yeah, it is manna falling from the sky. This rock is from Israel. Remember, remember Gene's message last week, or last week about the gates of hell? So there's that place in northern Israel. They called it the rock. It was the gates of hell. People would go there as a place of despair. They'd make sacrifices, human sacrifices, because they were afraid of this pagan God. And Jesus took his disciples up to that place, and he said, it's on this rock, the place called the rock, and the confession of Peter's faith that he said, I will build my church and that the gates of hell will not prevail. I am often overwhelmed by the world. I have this rock in my office that comes from the place that I wasn't supposed to take it, but I'm, you know, I'm sneaky taking rocks from these sacred places. But I took this rock as a reminder that the gates of hell will not prevail. God will build his church. And so when I'm discouraged, you know, I'll hold my rock. It's weird. And then I'll hold the confetti and I'll smile. <laughs> Here's a couple more rocks. This is from a a place called Caesarea. So this comes from the gates of hell, also known as Caesarea Philippi. This comes from a different different Caesarea because Caesar likes to name things after himself, okay? So um, this is the place where Paul was thrown in prison and had to appear before court. And he could have denied his faith to make his life easier or he could be faithful and he could show up with integrity and he did. And so I took this rock to remind me that this is the kind of person that I want to be. But I got another rock a few years ago that I want to represent our church. I got this rock and I got certain bricks. So this comes out of a dungy basement in Brooklyn, New York. It happens to be the basement of Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims, okay? So you've heard of Plymouth Rock in Boston, the Boston area. They had a Plymouth church. That church planted Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims in the 17th century. That church has an amazing history. You can still visit it today and take a tour. 
But one of the things I loved about being in the basement is they took us down to the basement and they showed us all of these hidden rooms where runaway slaves were hidden during a time of the Underground Railroad, and you remember, you remember the laws from history class, there was something called the Fugitive Slave Act, which made it possible for bounty hunters from the South to come up and just grab black people and take them back, or to take runaway slaves back. And Plymouth Church was willing to break the law, which by the way, I'm not, I have no laws right now I'm asking us to break, okay? This is not that. Let's just make sure we, we understand that. It's in the church world or a lot right now. But, they were in a complex situation. They were wanting to affect culture. And so they said, we will hide them in our basement. You go upstairs in their auditorium. And as you enter the auditorium, there's a picture. I've told you this many times. It's amazing. It's amazing. There's a picture of a little girl who has a red cape around her. And it's the, the cover of a Hallmark card that comes out at Christmas. And this little girl was a little slave girl who one Sunday... The church would do this often. They would travel from Brooklyn down to the south, and they would bring up a child who was in the bondage of slavery, and during the service, they would buy that child's freedom. Amazing, right? Now, some people were saying, how is it that we could justify giving our money, God's money, to these evil slaveholders? They were in a complex world, and they got very creative and affecting culture. And I can't tell you a Sunday when this happened, the, in the integrity of God, the integrity of being saved, of being loved by him, touched by him, showed up in a greater way than those Sundays. Now the way this story goes, on that Sunday, a lady threw in a giant diamond ring. Well, they raised more than they needed. And uh, uh, Pastor Beecher, Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother was actually the pastor, okay? He pulled out the ring and he put it on her finger and he said, today you are wed to freedom. So this rock and some crumbly bricks at my house, they're reminders of how complex it is to be a church in Boulder. It's a reminder of how complex it is to be a Christian in the world today. But it's a reminder that God sends us into different gardens to shape it, to restore it, to heal it. This is also a reminder of what happens when God's people work together. Because I could go on and on about Plymouth Church and the amazing things they did over the years. But you know what? We have some stories like that. There are over 40 former refugees that grew, lived in Burma, became Myanmar, that now live in Lafayette because of the generosity of this church taking care of them. There are kids that don't have parents that can speak English and tutor them, and dozens of them are being cared for by people like you on a weekly basis. Because of your generosity and your particip participation, we worship on Sundays together, and this becomes a safe place. That, listen to this. People who are former atheists walk into church right now because they want a place of peace, and they heard prayer can help them. Now, we are culture makers when we're at our best. And so I want to just give us a, a moment to reflect. So I want to take us to the quiet place of prayer, and I want to just let the Lord speak to you. So let's just bow our heads. <clears throat> and as we often do, I just want you to start by saying to the Holy Spirit that you're listening. He is here. 
is our friend. He has a gift. He speaks to us. Now ask God to bring to mind your gardens. You have been placed in a garden to take care of it. Now, as you're with the Lord looking at this, I want you to name the complexities. Where is the struggle? And then I want us to pray a prayer. I believe Naaman prayed. And his Lord help me. Show me how to show up with integrity. Show me how to shape. And you know what? I don't expect the Lord to give us answers right now in this moment, but I want to encourage you to pray this prayer this week. Show me how. Show me what kneeling on the dirt looks like for me. close with a blessing that comes from St. Patrick. One of the very best at changing culture. This is for you. Servant King, reveal to me the things I cannot see. The road ahead, the work prepared, the person that I could be. Help us with simple words to explain the warmth within our hearts that we experienced in that first encounter with your love and grace. The Spirit's flame still burning bright within the others on their own journeys may discover. So fill us with your love that it might cascade into the ordinariness of our working lives and others experience the warmth of its flow spreading from hearts and words and deeds, an unbroken stream bringing refreshment to all that it touches. You call us to leave all things, you who had nothing. You call us to be servants, you who, became, who came to serve. You call us to share the load, you who carried our sin. You call us to speak your word, you who lived it daily. You call us to be followers, and in your strength we will. Be the life that I live, be the love that I give. May this voice bring words of comfort. May these hands be there when needed. May these feet walk the extra mile. May this life be always centered on service, your service, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for your belief in us. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the strength of a Christian church. I pray all of those things might increase so that we can be a church that does not withdraw or protest or judge, but we might enter the world around us to make it a little more like heaven. 
on earth as it is in heaven. Help us do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.